Welcome to the Robot Report podcast, which brings conversations with robotics innovators straight to you. I'm Steve Crow, editor of the Robot Report. Happy New Year, folks. Great to be back with you after a two-week hiatus. Hope everybody had a safe, healthy, and happy holiday season. New episodes of the podcast drop every Wednesday. You can find us on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, leave us a rating, give us a review. Quick programming note before we get going here. My, my co-host Eugene Dimitri has unfortunately decided to leave the company to pursue another opportunity. Certainly wish Gino the, the best of luck in his next endeavor. Um, but uh, So we might sound a little bit different going forward here, but we'll still be bringing you weekly conversations with leading roboticists, innovative robotics companies, and, and other key members of the robotics community. And we have two great conversations lined up for you guys today. Later on, you'll hear from Josh Fox. He's an applications engineer at Festo USA. He was part of the winning team at the recent Mass Robotics GM Gripper Challenge. The basis of the challenge was to develop a proof of concept universal end effector that could grasp a variety of sheet metal parts that weighed up to 25 pounds. It was for precise robotic assembly. So I talked to Josh about what GM was looking for, the problem that they couldn't find on the open market, how Festo and its partner came up with the winning solution, and what's next for the universal end effector. But up first, my conversation with Matanya Horowitz. He's the founder and CEO of AMP Robotics. AMP Robotics is a Louisville, Colorado-based company using AI and robotics to improve the economics and deficiencies of the recycling industry. AMP kicked off the week and the new year by closing a $55 million Series B round. Matanya is here to give us the lowdown on robots for the recycling industry, some of the technical and uh, regulatory and international relation challenges involved with their systems, how their system has evolved over time, and how they've really come across some data-centric applications that have created a new line of revenue for AMP Robotics. So here's my conversation with Matanya Horowitz. Enjoy. Happy New Year, sir. Thanks for being here. How are you? Uh, I am great. Uh, thanks so much for having me and, and the company, Steve. Um, it is a great start to the new year. Yeah, no, absolutely. Congratulations. And we'll get into that, uh, the funding and how that will help AMP going forward. But let's start with a quick overview of the company from your perspective. Tell the folks listening what AMP Robotics is all about. Yeah, well, what we're doing here at AMP is using artificial intelligence and robotics to solve some of the primary challenges of the recycling industry. Um, it ends up the industry is really not had the ability to identify all of the different pieces of material that it's trying to sort out, whether it's, you know, cereal boxes, pieces of paper, um, you know, aluminum cans. And what artificial intelligence has done and deep learning specifically um, has done is it allows us to create a, a vision system that can identify all this different material. Uh, and with that capability, you can then solve um, some of these core challenges that have been in the industry since its beginning. Um, so um, due to the disparity and heterogeneity of the material, um, a lot of the sorting in recycling facilities has really been limited to manual sorting. Um, and so our primary product uh, up to this point has been a robotic system that can be installed with practically no retrofit into existing recycling facilities. And we can automate that sorting pro uh, process. Um, but as we see it, that's actually just the beginning. Um, there are a number of other pain points that we'll then be solving with, uh, with uh, artificial intelligence uh, and our vision system and, um, and this funding from our Series B uh, lets us go off after a lot of that. Uh, and so we're really excited. But um, yeah, it's AI at its core to solve uh, problems in uh, recycling. 
And we'll make sure to include some videos of uh, the system uh, up and running and, and working in the facility uh, along with the podcast here. But can, what can you tell us about how you have trained the, the vision system? I mean, it's, it's quite incredible to see, uh, you know, it's, it's quite accurate. It was at 80 uh, items per minute it can pick. I'm curious how you initially train the system. I know there's technology uh, as the systems are in use up in, in real world facilities that it's constantly learning, it's constantly training itself and, and improving as it continues to pick items. But how, how did you initially train it? I mean, did you <laughs> literally yeah. amass a huge pile of waste and recyclables? I mean, was there simulation involved? How did you initially do the training? Yeah, well, I, I remember our very first data set, which was, um, so at the very beginning, we started with the focus on what's called construction and demolition material, uh, which is basically, um, you know, bulldozed buildings. And um, so I, I went to Home Depot and I bought a bunch of two by fours, a bunch of bricks uh, and a sledgehammer. And I busted them all, all up in my garage, uh, put them on a table. <laughs> and then um, the first version of the system, uh, I was really excited about the Microsoft Connect and its depth sensing. Yeah. And so uh, the data set was, uh, yeah, uh, uh, image frames and then point clouds uh, and um, you yeah, had made my own data set um, made my own little GUI in uh, uh, and um, and did the labeling myself uh, the performance was really poor <laughs> uh, really poor uh, but um, they got excited uh, you're gonna start you're gonna start somewhere yeah yeah um, exactly and uh, mostly I was just happy that I could get everything to like compile um, but the um, but uh, so but that that was sort of the you know the very beginning. That was before the company I think was even formed. But the um, but the real start to our data set was um, we had a small lab in Boulder, Colorado, uh, and we did um, just collect a lot of material, scan it in, um, and then do uh, labeling ourselves. And um, what we kind of did is uh, so fortunately in the recycling industry, there's a, num a number of different uh, uh, niches that you can go after, and so we kind of found the ones where the vision system naturally had some aptitude uh, and then kind of focused on those to show the technology could work. Um, and uh, in a controlled, what's interesting is in a controlled lab setting with consistent lighting uh, where you're passing very similar material through, uh, it can work pretty quickly. Um, and this led us to start deploying um, or to start creating recordings at different recycling facilities around the country. Uh, we were really fortunate that um, despite being kind of like just a, a small ragtag team um, of kids, uh, people in the recycling industry were so excited about the potential that they were willing to let us in their facilities, willing to let us collect some data, willing to answer a lot of um, kind of ridiculous questions, uh, you know, looking back <laughs> and kind of get informed. Um, so we, we started very quickly to get real world data from these recycling facilities and we found Quickly, it's actually a very challenging problem uh, with the varying lighting conditions, with the fact that every piece of material is smashed or dirty or folded in some unique way. Um, but but having seen it work in our more controlled setting, we knew that it would be possible. We just had to kind of come up with the right recipe of neural networks and data sets and everything like that. Um, but, um, but yeah, our focus from the beginning has been real world data. Um, and then sort of just the, the brute force manual annotation of that data um, along with kind of the right recipe of, of algorithms and techniques around it. Do you guys have an, is there a number of items that the system's able to grasp? I mean, is there a tangible number? Yeah, well, I would say um, there's, so there, there's two different ways we, we look at the problem. We kind of split up the vision problem from the gripping problem. 
Mm. Um, so when it comes to the vision problem, I think at this point we identify on the order of a hundred categories and um, we're building the infrastructure to, to greatly expand upon that. We want to be able to identify material um, uh, at the SKU level um, across uh, the industry. Um, and we have, we have some work, we have some examples where we're doing that, um, but we want to, to greatly expand upon that and, and kind of do it universally. Um, in terms of what we can pick, um, once we've identified the items, um, so we can pick um, um, pretty much all of the packaging that these recycling facilities care about. Um, we use a suction-based gripper and it has a number of different challenges, um, but for the most part, we've come up with something quite good. Um, and so, you know, at this point, I, I don't know what it's, um, we had a, a, a figure of, uh, we've done like a, a billion, over a billion picks. Um, so, you know, we can pick, I guess, a, on the order of a billion different things. Um, uh, and so this is smashed up cartons, smashed up uh, aluminum cans, um, bottles, all sorts of stuff. So um, yeah, you kind of, you name it, um, we can <laughs> largely pick up, but I, I would say the something that's nice about the industry is our, our grippers aren't perfect. That's always something that we're working on. Um, sure. And, uh, and that's something actually the industry is okay with is um, in this environment, uh, people also aren't able to recover everything. And so, um, so we can be quite good, but uh, you know, um, it, it, we kind of take a probabilistic approach, you know, for PET bottles, we might pick 98% of what's there and, and such. Yeah. That, that billion number you threw out, that was a figure amp uh, throughout last April, I believe. So you guys oh, are probably yeah. well, well beyond that at, at this point in time, but uh, you know, just for the listeners that your amps pick and place robots, you can sort materials in a waste stream by color, by size, shape, opacity, consumer brand, and, and other uh, data points. But Give us, what are some of the more difficult items uh, AMP has come to be able to grasp over the years? Whether it was a, you know, more of a construction type material or uh, a consumer good? You know, it's kind of, it's kind of what you'd expect from a suction-based system, which is uh, anything that's too folded. So uh, if you imagine a, a water bottle, uh, if you smash it from the side, uh, you get something that's nice and flat. Uh, we'll, we'll crush that uh, or we'll pick it successfully all day. If it's smashed from the top, it can be heavily uh, folded. And you're not able to get a good seal. Um, in that case, um, those items tend to be a little bit more challenging. Um, you know, it just ends up that for most materials, they happen to get folded nicely. Uh, and, and so we have little problem uh, with them in these recycling facilities. Um, the other things that uh, trip us up are uh, long and skinny things. So um, like if you get a piece of pipe, uh, you know, that maybe is like a half inch in diameter or something like that, those can be problematic. Uh, we can pick those with different tools and grippers we have, but, um, but then there ends up being a little bit of a trade-off. If you want to pick that, you're not going to do as well on the larger items and such. Um, a, a question I commonly get is why we don't do uh, sort of a robotic sort of hand or something like that. Um, it ends up every mechanical gripper we've developed we're able to beat it with suction um, on pretty much every item. Uh, and it's uh, a little bit unfortunate for me, uh, for my PhD, I actually studied robotic grasping and did some work on sort of probabilistic path planning for grasping. And um, when I saw how well suction worked, I was like, oh, well, uh, hopefully, hopefully my work was interesting for somebody. But, um, <laughs> there yeah. goes that all that time. Yeah, huh? yeah. yeah, exactly. But so be, maybe someday. <laughs> yeah. So co correct me if I'm wrong here, but, um, I believe uh, AMP uses off-the-shelf with a Delta robots from ABB and Omron. 
You must use off-the-shelf cameras, I would believe. But the, yes. the, the suction gripper is, is a custom gripper built in-house. Um, you you kind of touched upon it. You have a little bit more leeway in, in how you grasp things as it's not uh, so important in, in this application if things break or, or are damaged a little bit compared to if it's a pick-and-place robot operating exactly. a warehouse, for example. But why did you end up designing a, a custom gripper? Was it more about the power uh, just the reliability of, of grasping success? Just what, what was the thought process there? Yeah, so, so when we were first starting out, the sort of core thesis was the hardware to solve this problem already exists. What's missing is a vision system that can identify this material. And so we should be able to make um, a good product without having to you know, invent a whole lot of hardware. And when it came to the robot, that, that was largely true. Uh, these Delta robots, we have also used uh, Scaras and, and Gantries in the past. Um, uh, they're totally capable of, uh, they're totally capable systems in this environment, um, as long as you sort of prepare them for the environment properly. Um, but uh, what we found is when it came to the gripper, um, there really wasn't something that was directly applicable for us um, in, in two ways. One was, uh, yeah, reliability and specifically reliability to the environment we have. Um, so in these recycling facilities, the things you're picking, uh, they'll be wet. Um, it's extremely dusty. Um, and uh, and it, yeah, just kind of gener generally nasty stuff. Um, and so what you find is a lot of the gripping systems, um, yeah, they don't do well with dust. You have to put a, a large number of filters that have to be regularly cleaned. And um, especially because the dust is often wet, um, even the systems with filters often fill up at a rate that's too quick to be useful. You have to clean them too often to really let the robot be on its own. So we saw that we needed to, to make something that was more resistant to dust. Um, um, and then secondarily, when it came to the actual end effector itself, um, the thing that'll be making contact with the material, um, we needed, um, a couple of things we needed a lot of flow to help deal with a lot of airflow to deal with um, sort of uh, the folds in the material and things like that. And we also needed a system that would be um, kind of willing to take a beating. Uh, like you said, one, it, one of the advantages we have in our application is that uh, nobody cares if you damage the material, it comes in damaged. It's been smashed by a collection truck. Um, I, like to, I, like gives to send, us, I like to send my recyclables nice and neat, you know, nice, <laughs> yeah, well, not damaged, you know, you, you would be one of the few, <laughs> yeah. one of the few. Um, but uh, yeah, if only, if everybody had the same level of care. Um, the, um, but, uh, but so we are able to get to these high pick speeds, like you mentioned, 80 picks per minute. We've actually gotten uh, uh, faster than that in more recent tests even, uh, some systems over hundred picks a minute. Um, but to, to get to those speeds, we have to have something that's very robust and doesn't mind kind of being smacked around. And so, uh, yeah, there just wasn't anything that had this combination of features. And, and so we came up with our own. Gotcha. We're here with Matanya Horowitz, the founder and CEO of Amp Robotics. I mentioned off the top here, Matanya, you closed a $55 million Series B round to kick off the week. I believe the company now has raised a total of, what, $74.5, $75 million uh, since it was founded. Just how does the Series B uh, how does that capital help? I know in the in the announcement of the funding round, AMP said it will help scale the, the current recycling robots, but it also said it will help develop new applications for materials recovery facilities. So kind of a twofold question, how does it help the current robots and systems that you guys have up and running, but also what new initiatives can you tell us about that AMP is work, working on? 
Yeah, it's, um, so I think the most straightforward thing is um, we, we've had um, a lot of success here in the United States um, and we've begun to expand a little bit into Japan, Europe uh, and Canada. Um, but uh, this allows us to get the resources to really expand in a more meaningful way in all of these different uh, territories. Um, which is really exciting for us. Uh, the recycling problem is very similar uh, in some point ways. It's more advantageous. It's, uh, it's even better value proposition in some of these areas. And so, um, so yeah, just sort of the straightforward growth of the company to being an international player. Um, but um, so that's part of the story. Uh, the other part is um, really uh, kind of going after other meaningful and deep problems in the recycling industry that can be solved with AI. And the way, I, the way I like to look at this is um, to kind of think about the unit economics of a recycling facility. So the, the way these recycling facilities work is, you know, people bring the material, uh, the, um, they charge what's called a tip fee. So you sort of pay something to tip, you know, the material out of these collection trucks. Um, if you went to a landfill, you'd also pay a tip fee. Um, you sort the material and then uh, based on the commodities you're able to separate out. You sell those, whatever you can't sell, you have to send to the landfill um, or whatever you're not able to sort out. Um, so um, what's interesting about the recycling world is that all of these commodities actually do have value. There's real value in the plastics and the paper and the cardboard and all of this. The problem is that all of that, or a lot of that value gets eroded away by, by the, the cost of sorting. So we're helping make a dent in that with our robotic systems. Um, well, the way we see it, what we are going to do is do anything we can to help improve these unit economics, whether that means allowing recycling facilities to extract more value out of the materials they're separating out or reducing the cost of separation. <clears throat> and so, you know, we're excited about other uses of the technology like these uh, vision systems. Uh, we're deploying vision systems without the robots so that recycling facilities can understand the quality of the commodities that they're separating out okay. and actually get yeah, and they can actually sell them for more. Yeah. So right now, um, you know, a recycling facility, it won't know if its material is, is separated out as 95% pure or 98% pure. And there can be real value discrepancies there. So, you know, you put our vision system there and we count everything and we say, okay, you know, 98 out of 100 of those bottles were bottles that you wanted and two things were bad. And one of them was a bowling ball and one of them was a, you know, grenade or whatever you're getting. And now you can put, you can ascribe some value to that. And now sort of you pay top dollar for your good stuff rather than what really happens in the industry now, which is everybody's kind of pays bottom so you're, dollar. So you're saying that the vision system without the robots. So yeah, even, even without the robot, yeah, purely so more of a, more of a data, a data play. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and that is sort of commodity challenge. Like, I don't know how good the commodities uh, I'm selling are. Um, my buyer doesn't know how good the commodities are that they're buying that is uh, just as core of a challenge in the recycling industry as sorting. That's the, co the cost of sorting and, it's and the cost of manual labor that goes into it. So there's sort of a number of kind of core pain points like this that with our vision system, we can start to go after. Um, and so that kind of expansion and scope is also what this uh, funding open up, opens up and, um, and we're pretty excited about, uh, about those different uses, but really it all comes down to how do we improve the margin per, for a recycling facility, whether that's in lowering their costs or in, in, increasing their revenue. And the vision system is really about increasing their revenue. Oh, it seems like a, a tremendous application. Um, I saw an AMP engineer posted on the, uh, about the funding round on LinkedIn either today or yesterday. And, and in his note, he said AMP retooled its products for scale 
in, in 2020 or 2021, I guess. I, I guess what, what, what can you tell us? What does that mean? I mean, what, what sort of changes were made to the technology or, it, or the business uh, enable to, in order to get it ready to scale internationally or even more in the U.S.? The kind of trajectory of the company has been uh, in 2017 and 2018, um, you know, we started to get something that was really working and kind of really solved a meaningful problem for these recycling facilities. And we started to, you know, sell these robots, start deploying them. Um, so what you had was kind of this first generation of the system, um, you know, doing uh, really meaningful stuff for our customers. But, uh, you know, the kind of, we had the kind of issues you'd expect, different issues with parts. Um, different issues with us not being able to monitor the systems as closely as we might like. And so um, we've spent a lot of energy this year kind of going back and, and really fixing, um, improving a lot of these things. Um, and so for us, what, it, what it's really about is being able to deploy not dozens of robots, but hundreds of robots. And that those robots just being absolutely bulletproof, uh, you know, very cheap for us to monitor them remotely and maintain. The, the existing systems we have out there, I mean, they're fantastic. Um, you know, I don't want to make it sound like they're bad. They're the best in the industry. Uh, you know, they're, they're selling well, but, um, but really for us, it's about, um, you know, how do we improve our own margin structure, whether that's in support or the bill of materials on these systems. And so, um, you know, now when we go sell the next hundred, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's even better for us as a business. Need to touch on a, a couple other business issues that uh, certainly were out of your control and certainly have affected many different players in the robotics industry, Matania. Obviously, COVID-19. Hopefully, there's some light at the end of the tunnel here. I'm not so sure. I go back and forth on it <laughs> all the <laughs> yeah. time. But I, w I would imagine, and again, I always preface this by saying, you know, obviously, COVID-19 has been devastating on, on, on many different levels. Um, but I would imagine it's probably increased AMP's business a little bit. Has it created more opportunity for what you guys are doing? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's about right for us. The So what we saw at the beginning of the year as people were starting to deal with COVID is a bit of a slowdown. Everybody kind of pulled back and said, you know, I don't know what the world's going to look like in a month. Um, you know, let's, let's sit tight here. But very quickly, what happened is these recycling facilities started to run into some pretty significant challenges the, they always have issues with turnover. It's a very challenging job to be standing on these conveyor belts, sorting out stuff by hand. Like I said, it's dusty, it's cold, it's hot, it's gross, it smells bad, all of these things. Um, and so they, um, what they found is these turnover issues started to get much worse. Um, people were afraid to come to the facilities. These facilities weren't designed with social distancing in mind. A lot of people uh, work very closely together. Um, they were also afraid to put their hands through material that may have come from an infected household. And so just kind of the, the operation of running these recycling facilities was becoming more challenging um, and they were losing more materials to landfills because they couldn't fully staff their facilities and things like that. So what we started to see is um, customers willing to place much larger orders than they were in the past. And a great example of this is our, uh, our partnership with uh, Waste Connections um, where we have uh, tw you know, 25 robots going into their fleet um, and helping deal with these kinds of severe challenges. But we were seeing that across the board. Um, and really what it's about is, um, you know, dealing with this, um, these pain points that have always been there for recycling facilities, whether it's around quality of materials, uh, turnover, uh, the need to constantly train people, 
uh, dealing with a material stream that's changing, but all of this was just heightened during COVID. Um, and so I think um, like, like you see in other places, uh, the trends were already there, the business was already doing well, but, um, but, uh, but COVID kind of put in, a, uh, was a bit of an accelerator uh, on what was happening. Yeah, you, you mentioned the deployment with waste connections in 2019, AMP deployed, was it 14 robots at, at single stream recycl recyclers in, in Florida? So starting to get some of those bigger orders. So congrats on that. Uh, another ongoing issue for the recycling industry are international relations and, and changing restrictions and standards uh, across the world. In the summer of 2018, China restricted imports of plastic waste, which forced the US to look for alternatives. The Philippines and Canada, they've also had a, a diplomatic spat over mixed trash that Canada had shipped to Asia uh, several years ago. How have these international disputes change things for the recycling industry and also for you guys? And, and how do you continually navigate these waters? There's a couple different angles to it. Um, so fundamentally, many of these challenges around Southeast Asian and markets uh, for recyclables, they're, they're actually around this quality issue for these commodities where the buyers, uh, you know, whether it was in China or Malaysia or, or whatnot, they don't really know how good the stuff is that they're buying. Um, I even, uh, and a lot of this comes down to American players. Um, there's, uh, you know, people would, there's all sorts of tricks. Like you, if you're, you have really good bail. So once they sort the stuff out, they, they compress it into bales and they sell bales by the, you know, the shipping container. And so you put your best bales on the outside and your crummy bales on the inside and things like that. And what was happening was these Chinese buyers, um, you know, they get material, they'd open it up and they'd, be like, oh my gosh, there's actually a lot of garbage in here. But, um, and then because in many of these countries, they didn't have great um, uh, uh, waste management infrastructure, they might take the actual garbage out and then, you know, throw it, you know, in the environment. Um, so it was becoming a big problem. I, I wish we had been just a couple years earlier because uh, with our vision system, if we can say right when the stuff is created, hey, this bale really is 98% pure, this one's 99% pure. And so you can have the assurance that what you're getting really is valuable commodities, not there's no garbage uh, mixed in. Then, then this sort of breakdown, uh, you can prevent it from the beginning. Um, so there really is a tech, there, there could, uh, if, if only, you know, deep learning had started earlier and we'd started earlier, there could have been a technology solution to this uh, sort of capability that was capability, lacking, cap, sorry, lack of capability uh, in the industry. Um, but regardless, um, the effect it's had is that there, um, there became um, a glut of material, of low quality material, where a lot of these recycling facilities that used to be able to sell it couldn't anymore. And so the markets that remained really only remained for material that was very high quality. The challenge recycling facilities then had is, okay, how do I create high quality material? Um, there's really kind of a, only a couple of choices. I employ a lot more manual labor than I did in the past. Um, to kind of sort stuff better. Um, that can be extremely expensive and the economics may not work out. Uh, some facilities could go through a large retrofit, kind of retool their operations, make them more modern using the existing equipment. Um, and that could be quite expensive, but then you might be able to create stuff that's good enough to sell. We present uh, a third way, which is, hey, we can actually utilize pretty most of your existing infrastructure and we'll more or less just bolt robots on top of it and give you an opportunity to improve quality without sort of tearing in what you're doing apart. Um, and so that's really what's driven the demand for our robots. So, so this trend um, has, uh, 
actually helped support our business. And so, you know, for us, if quality standards continue to rise, we actually think that um, we're a bit of a hedge for these businesses against that um, and, uh, and help make the industry stronger by producing more, uh, more pure materials. So, um, so for us, it's really been, I think, um, uh, it's, it's helped support the business over the last couple of years. It's great that you can, uh, I call it retrofit existing facilities with your, with your system. And I know there's a little, the little housing unit, uh, I call it where, you know, the Delta robots are, are contained in, within, within that unit to sort of keep the robots and, and the humans separated. And I believe AMP tested its system really early on using collaborative robots, if I'm not mistaken, but is there any need to, to make or, or, or desire from, from some of your customers to make it more of a collaborative process or enable the, the robots and the humans to work a little bit closer together? Or is this sort of a, something you've envisioned as being you know, a, a separate part of the operation? No, I would say there is a good demand for collaborative robots, but it's, it's a little bit indirect. Um, so for what these recycling facilities care about, it's really kind of, what are you spending per pick, like kind of dollars per pick? Mm. Um, and then it's also about the real estate that they have available if you're not going to do a large retrofit. So sort of per linear foot of conveyor belt, uh, how much pick capacity do you get? And so for a collab, if you were to look at our system and you were to say, hey, I can get rid of the safety cage uh, that you mentioned, I can get rid of other things and I can sort of shrink it down, make it sort of lower cost because all of that infrastructure is quite expensive. Um, and then I can also cram more robots together because I don't need the shielding. That is what the, the facilities care about um, and, and, and would get quite excited about. Um, the challenge we've had is that um, uh, when we've looked at this in the past is, um, you know, for a number of fundamental reasons, collaborative robots don't have the same speed. Uh, and so when you kind of look at it and you say, okay, I'll make a collaborative robot, maybe it's you know, I can get 30 picks per minute out of it. That's probably the best you can really do in this environment. Um, you know, what, what, what would I, how much cost savings are there from taking off the uh, safety cage and everything like that? It ends up not being advantageous. Um, so more or less, if you had a faster collaborative robot, yep. um, it would be a no brainer uh, from our perspective, but um, we have the limitations on speed that you kind of need for that collaborativeness um, prevents it right now. Uh, the other thing too is, is uh, the belt speeds in many of these facilities are quite fast. Um, so if you don't want them to change the belt speeds, you need a collaborative robot that can pick on belts that are, you know, you're, you're usually starting at about 150 feet a minute, um, which is, you know, kind of regular conveyor belt speed, but, um, but go all the way up to about 400 feet a minute, which is pretty fast. Uh, and a lot of collaborative robots that, you know, they're really optimized for fairly slow belts. At least, at least that's been my experience. Gotcha. You know, I was joking before, obviously, about how great of a recycler I am and how neat I am. I, I could really use a consumer version of your product because <laughs> my recycling operation is a mess. I, I go to the local transfer station, you know, maybe once every couple of weeks, and I just spend an inordinate amount of time trying to, you know, sort the, the plastics from the cardboard, from the paper and all that kind of yes. stuff. So when, when's the consumer version coming for me? <laughs> you know, um, it's uh, not, uh, not probably something that we'll focus on too much, unfortunately, uh, but I have seen some smart sort of uh, smart trash cans. Yeah, uh, that those, yeah. The job. yeah. yeah um, but, you know, for, from our perspective, what we would aim to do is say, tell you what, um, you don't need to do any separation. I'll let the robots handle it. Like, you, you know, you, you shouldn't spend your time, uh, you know, looking at, um, let's say it's the, you know, the box that like some beer comes in and being like, okay, is that cardboard or is that paper or like what? 
um, let the robots figure it out. So yeah, we, what we, what we want to do is expand the scope of the technology so a recycling facility can handle more and, and that stuff can be more and more messed up. Yeah, I've seen some pretty cool uh, like self-driving trash cans basically, right? That'll go to <laughs> the, the end of your driveway and will drive back. There's actually a, a I think they're based in London, a company called Ursa Robotics. They're making a, autonomous vehicles for collecting waste. Now it's not an autonomous, you know, oh, truck cool. or, or anything like trash truck. It's they're, they're taking uh, trash bins and, and trying to turn those into autonomous vehicles that when they get full enough, they'll, they'll drive to the local waste facility rather than having a truck try to drive around the entire. Oh, how yeah. interesting. It kind of looks like the neuro system. Yeah. Yeah. But it's huh. for, for collecting waste, which was pretty, pretty cool. So there's a lot happening around robotics and waste and recycling. So, you know, just sort of to wrap things up, Matanio, what's next? I mean, more robots, more data centric applications, getting to 2 billion items picked. I mean, just give us uh, <laughs> quickly what's next for AMP robotics. Yeah, I'd say, um, a lot of it will be uh, data focused. Um, so one of the things that we we're, we're able to do is, um, like I mentioned, identify material with sort of an arbitrary level of selectivity. So, you know, if you want to identify material at the brand level or by form factor or whatnot, uh, now these recycling facilities can do that. And that information has a lot of power um, for uh, different regulatory groups, but also for brands uh, who are concerned with how uh, how their packaging is being managed uh, at the end of at the end of life. And so, being able to provide this information and make it really easy for those brands um, to sort of make decisions and get involved, I, we think that that's going to have a large influence on the recycling industry. Right now, capturing this information was it's extremely expensive and really doesn't scale. So. So yeah, a lot more on information, a lot more on how that information influences how recycling facilities operate. The end result, you know, if, if you're outside of the waste business is uh, just kind of this, um, this trend, which is the recycling industry will get stronger and healthier over time and become a bigger and bigger part of the waste industry. And that's kind of what, what we're all about, making make the economics better so that uh, recycling and divert, you can divert more from the, uh, you're naturally incentivized to divert more from the landfill than ever. Um, but, uh, but in the process that'll mean, uh, kind of more products for, for us, um, whether it's a standalone vision system or other things we're working on, um, more robots out there, more picks, um, just kind of more, 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 but, but it's the, it's the, the expansion in scope that we're most excited about. Matanya Horowitz, founder and CEO of AMP Robotics. Happy New Year, sir. Thanks for being here and best of luck going forward. Likewise. Thank you much, so much, Steve. Before really we get to our next interview, just a reminder on how to stay updated on all the latest robotics news. We have you covered with our network of websites. Check us out at the Robot Report, Robotics Business Review, and Collaborative Robotics Trends. If you haven't already done so, we encourage you to check us out, sign up for our newsletters, and follow us on social media. Up next, my conversation with Josh Fox. He's an applications engineer at Festo USA. Again, he was part of the winning team at the recent Mass Robotics GM Gripper Challenge. The idea for the challenge was to develop a proof of concept universal end effector uh, that could grasp a variety of sheet metal parts that weighed up to 25 pounds. GM is looking to use this for precise robotic assembly. They don't really tell us too much about what they're looking to do, but uh, looking to use this end effector for precise 
robotic assembly. We have a photo of the end effector. It's kind of tough to see here on the show notes and on the robotreport.com. I guess they're being pretty tight to the vest with the development of this end effector. But I talked to Josh about the specifics of what GM was looking for, how they couldn't find what they needed on the open market, how Festo and its partner came up with a winning design, how they iterated through that design and what's next for the new end effector, which has a market outside of just GM as well. GM doesn't own the IP for this. So it could be a a, a nice product going forward for Festo and its partner. So here's my conversation with Josh Fox. Enjoy. Josh, thanks for being there. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Happy New Year to you. The basis of, of this challenge, from my understanding, was to develop a proof of concept universal end effector that was capable of grasping uh, a variety of sheet metal parts, I guess up to 25 pounds. GM's looking to use that the, the solution in precise robotic assembly. But Josh, from your perspective, just tell us what was GM looking for here? It, it sounds like they weren't satisfied with any of the end effectors on the market as far as their performance capabilities in, in grasping and precisely aligning sheet metal components. Yeah, we definitely saw this as an opportunity to get a little creative and go outside the usual box of your uh, one end effector for maybe a couple pieces. Uh, we, we saw it as an opportunity to really kind of flex our ability to create something that, like you said, would work with a whole bunch of different parts. Um, so I think at the moment we tested it on five or six different parts that GM sent to us. Uh, the original outline was uh, holding about 12 parts. And yeah, really it was based around uh, getting more flexibility out of your end effector. We're not doing any crazy large loads, but for all those little tiny parts, it kind of helps to not have uh, a tooling change every time you need to pick up a different part that weighs a pound. So that was a nice little feature to this tooling, (laughs) I think. Makes life easier, it sounds like. So we, we hope to have a picture of the end effector by the time we post the podcast. But just, just for the listeners, break down the, the end effector for us what, as much as you can. I know there's some things that you might not be able to talk about, but what does it look like? How does it work? Why was it able to perform so well? Yeah, so uh, our end effector, uh, the map, uh, Mag Switch and Festo team came up with, uh, consists of probably three main parts, I would describe it. Uh, there is a... Mag switch, uh, E30 ro- magnetic gripper that uh, does all the holding of the work pieces. So obviously we're working with ferrous material. Uh, and that is paired up with a rotary actuator from Festo, which will uh, rotate in a couple different locating pins or remove the locating pin if there's just a flat surface that needs to be grabbed and not a, a locating feature. Uh, so the rotary has the three settings on it where it'll have one size four-way locator, another size four-way locator, or no locator pin. And then there's an additional linear actuator that uh, controls a second two-way locating pin that uh, is what varies to the distance between the locating features. So if we have a part that has a, a six mil locating feature, 50 mil away, we can grab that say if there's another one with the same size holes, but now those locating features are 75 millimeters away, we can easily adjust that on the fly. Doesn't sound like there was any training required to teach the gripper the parts it's picking, it just uses those pins? Yeah, so we, we had the, the sample parts that we were working off of and they were very similarly shaped. Uh, uh, the locating features were 
basically the same aside from uh, some variation in size, but it was really the distance apart and features that was uh, the, where the flexibility comes into play. That and the alternating of pin sizes for the four-way pin. Obviously with sheet metal parts, but what specifically is, is GM looking to use this end effector for? What's the application? Uh, we did not have any specific applications. Uh, we were just kind of given some sample parts and said, hey, what, uh, what, what, what can you do for us that would hold all of these with one end effector? So, Secret. I, what are they working on over there at GM? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, they haven't told me that. That's above my pay grade, too. So. <laughs> what, what was the toughest part? I mean, what was it, I mean, was it just integrating the, the different pieces of technology to, to work together or, you know, from your perspective, what was the, the toughest part of, of ensuring the end effector's success? I think a couple of the, the challenges that our teams had to face was, uh, well, the first being that we're uh, two separate companies that are collaborating on this, the MagSwitch team and the Festo team. Uh, so them being based out of Colorado, uh, myself and our Festo team being based out of Detroit here, uh, we communication, we had to go back and forth with that a little bit, which uh, it wasn't a challenge, but it was just something that definitely had to be considered. But I would say the the largest challenge for this competition was the rapid turnaround. I know uh, we were requested to enter the competition. And I think it was about six weeks later, we had gone from initial concept to a built-up prototype with controls on it. So the, the rapid turnaround of getting parts designed up, uh, getting the parts manufactured, which we did locally here in Michigan to uh, make sure that we made the deadline, and as well as integrating it all together with the, the Festo actuators and the programming of it all, that was a... Uh, it was a bit of a time crunch, but I think we're all very happy with how it turned out despite that. Yeah, I have the schedule up here in front of me. It looks like uh, May 15th is when the challenge officially opened and the final evaluation was October 30th. So, Yeah, what- and I don't think we got in at the initial opening of the competition. I think we came into it a little bit later on. I don't know the exact date. You know, add, add on top of the short timeline, a little something called COVID-19 going on. I mean, did that did that impact anything at all? Or, I mean, it sounds like this would have had to have been done virtually anyway, but did, did that add in any extra complexity? Uh, I'd say the most complexity that the, the COVID situation added, uh, um, aside from just general stress in the world, um, <laughs> manufacturing, uh, finding a place that could actually turn around the parts that either was open and not shut down for being non-essential or wasn't already overloaded with work because they were essential. That was certainly a consideration. So, you know, turning something around in six weeks and in any time is, I would say, an impressive feat for a project like this, uh, let alone the circumstances that we are under currently. But I think the fact that generally we are flexible working from home and uh, that sort of thing did actually help out in this as well. Because like you said, most of the collaboration took place through virtual means. So how much did you have to iterate through? Was there a, a vast difference in the end effector's performance from, let's say, the, the first concept through the, the final evaluation? How much were you able to improve its performance over the short period of time? Uh, well, one of the initial concepts that we had was using uh, two of the mag switch grippers, and it would have had uh, two rotary actuators, one for each of them, to select different pins. But uh, that obviously would have had a, a fixed distance between the two. And that's when we kind of got to thinking, well, if we really just have the, the one four-way locating pin with the magnet paired up with it, 
when the rotary actuator, uh, we could toss another two-way pin onto a linear actuator, which will uh, help us get the flexibility in terms of picking parts with separate dimensions. So I think coming from the initial uh, tooling, while it was semi-flexible in that you could select multiple pins to configure it based on your part you're picking, uh, the, the final concept with the linear actuator, rotary actuator combo uh, definitely has more flexibility to it. So, you know, perhaps that's one thing maybe you, you would change going forward, but it's another question that I wanted to ask you is, you know, if there was more time, you know, to figure out and, and I don't know if perfect is the right word, but enhance the end effector's design, and maybe that's something you guys are, are focusing on right now, what's, what's, what's something else that you would change going forward? Uh, moving forward, uh, we're putting a lot of focus on ruggedizing the, the end effector concept. Uh, as it stands now, it's a, a bit open. The, the stepper motors that we're using aren't totally enclosed, so they'd be exposed to an environment where, you know, you wouldn't want them crashing into your pieces, yeah. your work holding and all that. So that, that is something that uh, is going to be improving and changing as we move forward before it's implemented in a true industrial setting. But as far as uh, starter concepts goes, I think we've proved that we have a very flexible and effective solution. So what's, is that what's next? I mean, I know this was designed to just be a proof of concept, but where does Festo, MagSwitch, where do you guys go from here? I mean, can you tell us what you're doing with GM? Are you looking to commercially develop this for them? Do they own the rights to it? What can you tell us about where this goes? Uh, well, MagSwitch and Festo retain the IP for the uh, gripper concept. So uh, it's not just beholden to GM, uh, but they have expressed interest in getting uh, our our gripper concept into their plants uh, by March it has been some of the discussion they're looking to have. Uh, so it sounds like we will actually have them on some shop floors and in, in a true industrial setting uh, in the next several months here. So and beyond that, I mean, we're certainly going to be, uh, now that we've seen how well our teams can collaborate and the things we can come up with, uh, I think we're definitely going to be looking for more uh, opportunities similar to this with other manufacturers. So do, do you know, and excuse my ignorance on this question, but do you guys have a relationship with MagSwitch prior to this? Uh, yeah, yeah, we do. Um, I believe it was earlier this year um, that we signed an official agreement where uh, we are a distributor for MagSwitch products in the United States uh, and Canada and Mexico. So uh, we've actually done a fair bit of collaboration. I had the opportunity to travel out to their uh, Denver headquarters, or Colorado. I, I shouldn't say Denver. I don't know that for a fact. Um, the Colorado headquarters for a week of training from the MagSwitch team, which was really, really helpful. Uh, it got me a much better idea of the strength of their product and the capabilities and as well as kind of prepared myself as an application engineer to go back to our sales team and support them in helping their customers uh, find the right magnetic gripper solution if that's something that they're interested in. This is more- so There is an existing relationship. Yeah, and this is maybe to wrap up here, this is more of a, a general question. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure you could pontificate about this for hours, but just in, in terms of the state of, of robotic gripping and manipulation in general and the flexibility of these solutions. I mean, there's a million different grippers out there. Uh, some of them are, are, are more flexible than others, but how, how does, how does the industry get to a point where there are just a, a fewer number of these things? I mean, it's not, I, I can't imagine that it's economical or, or efficient or feasible to 
come up with a new solution every time a company like like GM ha, has an issue where they can't find an existing solution to solve their problem. How do we continue to move the, the industry and the capabilities of grippers and end effectors forward? Hmm. Well, I would say that uh, this, this did require a fair amount of effort from our teams to, to come up with a solution like this for GM. Like you're saying, it's not just a, oh yeah, we slapped something together and it's super great and flexible. It, it took work and we we're proud of what we came up with. Um, in terms of moving forward in the industry, I think that this is, this is the kind of thing that uh, companies are going to have to look to. Like in, in typical industry, in my experience, uh, everyone's used to very um, heavy duty, large end effectors that are very specially crafted. Um, whereas this kind of tooling, it may not be for the heaviest duty of applications, but I mean, just reducing the size of it, the footprint, uh, it's maybe a, a cubic foot in total, total size. Um, would contain the entire end effector. Um, I think by moving towards these more uh, flexible concepts where, you know, you, you, you may not have the silver bullet for every situation, but if you have the, the gripper concept that will get you to 90% of it, then that's only 10% more of the engineering that you have to do to accomplish the rest. So I think it's a good way to um, kind of set ourselves up for success in terms of having a concept that we can apply to a variety of applications. Like not everybody is gonna get the same gripper if they want something along these lines, but that it's a good platform to build off of in terms of at least meeting many of a customer's needs, if not then moving forward to more specialized things. A great opportunity for, for Festo and, and MagSwitch to, to build a relationship with GM Maybe, again, maybe that already existed, but it sounds like you, you also see opportunities for this product outside of GM as well. There's a, a market opportunity there. Yes, definitely. And, and we do we do business with GM. We did, certainly would always love to do more business with GM, so that certainly doesn't hurt. But uh, yeah. Josh Fox, Applications Engineer at Festo USA. He was part of the recent team that won the Mass Robotics GM Gripper Challenge. Josh, thanks for taking us inside the challenge and best of luck with the product going forward. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Steve. Good talking to you. And that's going to do it for the Robot Report podcast. Thanks to Matanya Horowitz and Josh Fox for joining us on the program today. Again, new episodes of the podcast drop every Wednesday. You can find us on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe leave us a rating, give us a review, tell your friends. And to stay updated on all the latest news in the robotics industry, check us out at the Robot Report, Robotics Business Review, and Collaborative Robotics Trends. For the entire team here at the Robot Report, I'm Steve Crow. Have a great week, everyone. We'll chat with you again next Wednesday.